Hey, Seneca listeners. Today, we're very proud to present a new podcast in the Seneca Network on SupChina. It's called New Voices, and it's a show all about women in China with a focus on women in the world of letters. It's hosted by Alice Xin Liu, a translator originally from Beijing, but who grew up in the UK before coming back to Beijing, and by Joanna Chu, a Hong Kong Canadian journalist who you've heard on Seneca a couple of times in the last year or so. Today's show features Yuan Yang, a correspondent for the Financial Times in Beijing. We hope that you enjoy it and that it makes you think and that you will subscribe and keep an ear out in coming weeks as we introduce more great podcasts about various facets of China. Now, please enjoy. Hello, welcome to the second episode of the New Voices podcast. This is Alice recording from Beijing, and Joanna is in Vancouver. Say hi, Joanna. Hey, Alice. Nice to see you on Skype. Yeah, it's great to see you. What have you been up to? Um, I've been setting up my house in Canada, and you know, staying engaged in China things from afar. You moved there, right? Recently from Beijing. Yeah, I moved here. Yeah, I've been in Greater China for seven years, so it's nice to go back home. And kind of settle down a bit, and kind of balance work and life better. Yeah, that sounds really good.、Um, we miss you a lot from over here. So, tell me about、um, self care. What have you been doing today? Yeah, so we're gonna start every podcast of self care because new voices. It seems like we do so much, but we want to make sure that all our members and volunteers are taking care of themselves. So. Um, what I'm doing for self care today? I went paddleboarding.、Um, I got a secondhand paddleboard and I did a workout on the lake, and it was amazing. How about you, Alice?、Uh, today I spent a couple of hours just relaxing because yesterday was the last day of my yoga teacher training、uh, in Beijing, which I chose to do 20 days of really intensive teacher training. I feel like self care is important in the sense that I don't always have to be pushing myself. In terms of my career, or、um, in terms of other ambitions, so I like to do things that are really challenging, but not like what we're going to discuss today. Yeah, so it's important, especially because、um, what we talk about on the podcast and other other forums can be quite overwhelming and depressing. Like me too, it's people speaking out around the world about sexual harassment and power dynamics. Um, so today, I'll just start with talking about my earlier reporting on how Me Too started in China. It started last October, as you know, with、uh, the hashtag going viral on Twitter and everyone sharing their stories, and Harvey Weinstein and all the stories around that. And people, as in China, were looking around and seeing when is this going to pick up in China, or will it ever pick up in China, given you know so many taboos in society here and the government online censorship. So nothing really happened for months in China except、um, New Year's Day earlier this year.、Uh, a former PhD student, Luo Xixi,、uh, she lives in the West Coast U.S. now, but she posted her story on Weibo on January first, where she talked about how her former PhD supervisor lured her to a house under the pretense of asking for help watering plants and tried to rape her. And her story, she told it in detail, really kicked off the Me Too movement in China. But at first, I actually spoke with her, and she was so surprised at how 
powerful it was and how many people spoke up afterwards. Students and professors, they signed petitions like all over the country. And, you know, in China, we always say collective action is unusual as far as on this large scale all over the country. But still Me Too in the first few months of the year, it only focused on universities mostly and professors getting outed as having harassed students. I talked to a master's student in Qingdao, and she was the first person known to sue police for inaction on her rape case. She said police did not take her seriously, and she actually was able to file her lawsuit at, in court. But the way she was taking action, she still felt really isolated because it hadn't spread in China beyond universities. But in the past few weeks, we've seen this changing. So what have you noticed, Alice, in the news in China? Well, I think, um, so first of all, I have been out of it for so long with yoga teacher training. But I think the last two weeks has just really, really, really skyrocketed in terms of the number of stories that have come out about Me Too in China. Um, it's sort of a pivotal moment because it's also happening right now. Uh, we will get into this with our guest Yuan, so I will just introduce her. So today we have Yuan Yang, who is the Beijing tech correspondent for the FT. Nice to be here, Joanna and Alice. Yuan has also run sexual consent workshops for university students, and she covered Me Too recently in China uh, on the internet and also its censorship. She is going to get deep with us today on this issue. So Yuan, let me ask you about your recent coverage of the Me Too movement on the internet. So I think one really good question to frame this with is, can we call the Me Too uh, movement a real movement in China, given that the government has a history of cracking down on anything that looks like collective action coordinated across the country? And I think the internet has really changed things obviously in China. Um, in January, within days of Law Shishi's petition going up, there was a WeChat group set up of over 200 students from universities across China talking about similar cases that in their own universities, trying to brainstorm and plan how to bring Me Too forward on their own campuses. And I think that's what you can call the be beginning of a movement. Of course, is not a movement in the same way that you might conceive of in the UK or the US. There isn't a lot of funding. There aren't NGOs being set up. There aren't marches, demonstrations in public, um, by and large. But I think the energy and the momentum around it online is really palpable. Um, it's something that's gotten everyone talking. And I think the fact that there have been linkages made between universities across the country, that to me is the start of the kind of network that makes a movement possible. Right. So in your um, recent reporting or your viewing of these university students that you talk to for your reporting, because mm. you concentrate on university students, what did they talk to you about in terms of Me Too or sexual consent? So I've been present at some meetings of feminist groups discussing Me Too cases in their own universities. I've also heard students talk to me personally about their experiences and I guess a couple of things really strike me. One is the assumptions. Of course, there are many assumptions around what constitutes sexual consent, and that's the case across the world, and that's often what leads to sexual assault or rape. And the second thing that really strikes me is the lack of knowledge around sexual health and contraception in China and how that really exacerbates sexual assault because of the many medical problems that it can then lead to. Um, and just on the second point, right now I think rather than using uh, condoms or using proactive contraception, 
university students often feel they have no choice but to use the morning after pill or even abortion in the worst situation. And it's absolutely terrible that a friend of mine who is a university student told me that she saw an advert for an abortion clinic that had discounts for students. Wow. Which just shows you how much that's ingrained into people's expectations that it would be the women to clean up the mess if there is a pregnancy and also the lack of understanding of preventative contraception that's partly due to the lack of sexual health education throughout any level of the university system in china and the fact that parents as well as teachers have a strong taboo against students getting into relationships at any stage uh, of their education it's seen as a distraction from their studying so yeah you're saying that sexual assault can have pretty horrible consequences, particularly because there's a culture of not using contraception. So it's less likely, say, a young woman would be on the pill and she may Mm -hmm. get pregnant if she is assaulted. Yeah, 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 I think that's the case. And in fact, I think the pill is known among uh, some uh, female students in China, but other methods of contraception are really unknown, even beyond the pill. So for many women, the pill doesn't work for them. It has the wrong side effects for them. If you were in the UK, for example, on the national health system, your doctor would probably would give you a lot of different options. Have you tried this or that? Have you tried the IUD? Have you tried other kinds of pills, etc.? And in China, that's really not discussed at all. It's either nothing, most usually, or the pill or potentially condom use or the morning after pill. So um, when you talk to these university students and they tell you that they're relying on abortion, or not relying on abortion, but they're using the morning after pill, and later on we see the ads and we see the other things targeting students to get abortions or what have you, do you feel like they are aware that there are other options available? No, really. I think it's generally a lack of awareness because if you think about it, where would you get the information from? Your parents probably didn't tell you about it. You went through school with nobody around you knowing about forms of contraception. Your teachers never taught you about sexual health. And so by the time you're sexually active, of course, it's very natural that you would just assume that everybody like you is having either unprotected sex or only relying on one method of contraception. And that's the only way. So I think it's unsurprising um, that there is a low level of knowledge and it's partly because of the taboo around sexual health and discussing sex um, at all uh, in China. So Yuan, let's talk about the Yuexin case where a uh, PKU student, Yuexin, tried to find out what happened to Gao Yan, another student from the 1990s who had uh, suffered sexual assault at the hands of an advisor. Do you want to give us some background on that? Yeah, so I think what's interesting about this case is that Yuexing herself was trying to find out the facts from Peking University, one of the most prestigious universities in the whole of China, and asked them how did they deal with this case at the time, because actually Gaoyan committed suicide later, and many of her uh, fellow students at the time blamed this on the university's handling of the case and the fact that she wasn't isolated from her professor, who she'd accused of sexually assaulting her. So a lot of attention was pinned on Peking University, um, even though this was a historic case. But as the Me Too movement flared up again, it brought such historic cases that others felt had not seen justice back to the fore. So Yuexin wrote to the university and asked them, what did you do? And 
According to her, she was continually harassed by university officers after doing so. And note that she herself wasn't asking for a specific outcome. She was merely asking for information. And this escalated to the extent where the university contacted her parents and told them to basically get her to quieten down. She was effectively taken into house arrest um, at her family home um, at, for that instant. This is actually quite a common pattern that on campuses, university administration want to keep anything quiet that could damage the reputation of the university. So presumably they saw this, uh, Yue Xin's request, thought, oh no, this could lead to really bad press for us. We need to quiet this down. And then they go to the uh, family of the student to try and get them to put pressure on the student as well as going to p local police and so on. So there's lots of pressure from multiple sides here. Right. I remember reading about this uh, and about how her mum, I think, got really, mm. really upset because she'd been taken by PKU administrative staff and said, do you know what your daughter is doing? And do you know what's going on? And yeah. she's raising awareness of this particular issue and topic. Yeah. And it's really incredibly damaging to her school career and for somebody who had worked so hard to yeah. be at PKU, at Peking University, and then to raise these issues was basically damaging her school school career. So part of it was her mm. was sort of sexual assault and feminism was detrimental to her career is how mm. the school had framed it. Yeah, and this kind of goes back to, I think, the concept of shar um, or raising a fuss. I think this is one of the ways in which uh, administration, people in power will try to stop people from speaking out by saying, oh, you have so much to lose. You have this great career ahead of you. You have this uh, you have this degree that you're pursuing. Um, why don't you just calm down and be quiet? And that's a huge uh, disincentive for people to speak up because they're worried about being remembered, uh, you know, in the news or by people with power as the one who was trying to hold powerful people to account. And in this case, it's not even that Yueshin was finding justice for for herself. It was a historic case. She was trying to uncover the real story behind it. And that, even that was enough to be deemed too sensitive right. by PKU. Yeah, so this was exactly what happened also with the case I mentioned earlier on about the student in Qingdao suing the police mm -hmm. um, and the police uh, brushing her off. She first tried to go to her university, but her university dismissed the case, and she said she, the, her professor let the male student who raped her go home, like kind of run home to get away from the situation. Mm. And after she spoke with me and other foreign media, she told me that the university talked to her parents multiple times and told her that she might not graduate from her degree if she keeps going on um, making a fuss like this. So sadly, it's so common. And also sadly, in June, like I think the whole world who, who was watching China was shocked and saddened. There was another suicide case. Can I, sorry, can I also just ask, Joanna, the Qingdao case you're talking about is, is the case where the woman had uh, said that there was CCTV footage of her assault, but yeah. that the police, I think she that's, said I think the that's police didn't check mentioning. it. Yeah. So in that Qingdao case as well, the role of the police was really contentious because according to the victim, she said that there was CCTV footage that she was assaulted in a common space uh, in her school. And therefore there was a surveillance camera pointing at her um, and that there should be footage. But until now, she's not been able to recover the footage from the police. Um, and I think 
the role of the police in dealing with these cases is also what partly ignites the imagination of Chinese social media users because the lack of surveillance footage or claiming that there isn't surveillance footage when potentially there might be surveillance footage is a recurring theme. You had that last winter in the kindergarten scandal. You had that in many other scandals in China where suddenly valuable evidence just went missing. So there have been so many cases, it seems, like this year that's hard to keep track for even us uh, from what we just discussed with the university students. And now in the summer, we have seen these reports of sexual assault allegations against leaders in the NGO field. For example, at the end of July, there has been an accusation against Lei Truong, who is a leader in the vaccination movement. Have you heard about this one, Joanna? Yeah, I mean, it's quite significant because as a journalist covering these issues, like I heard kind of whispers among some activists that male leaders of these activist groups sometimes disrespect women, but they don't want to make it public because activists are already in such a precarious position in China. But the fact that we see these cases coming out and NGO leaders are apologizing for what they did, it shows that people are also prioritizing their personal safety. And, and Yuan? I think that's a really important thing to emphasize because I can understand the trade-off that you might think you have as an NGO uh, member in China, there's been a series of laws in recent years cracking down on what NGOs can do and restricting your activities. So you don't want to raise any negative attention to your organization. But still, you have to think, you know, what are you sacrificing here? Because if you can't have a safe working environment, you can't have a safe movement, then should we really have these leaders at the forefront? And I was very glad to hear that, you know, in the wake of the Lei Trong allegations, allegations... Do you want to recap the Lei Trong? Um, so Lei Truong is somebody who's been working in the NGO field for a long time. And I actually read some, um, a recap by Li Maizu, who is one of the Feminist Five. And one of the allegations in late July is that he has been sexually assaulting or raping the volunteers that are working with him on the hepatitis B vaccines. So there's been at least 10 activists in Chinese NGOs who have been subject to several sexual misconduct allegations. And so it's definitely outside universities now. And just, you know, the last few days I saw news on my news feed and I was so shocked because I've been to this temple, the Longchuan Temple in the Beijing mountains. And uh, one of China's highest ranking Buddhist monks, uh, Xi Xuecheng, he's uh, being accused of sexually harassing nuns, nuns at the temple. So it seems all over Chinese society this is happening. What do you think about that, Yan? I think the fact that it's not just the university sphere, it's also NGOs, it's also the media. So several prominent uh, columnists and also one of the uh, most famous TV personalities, Zhu Jun, was accused of sexual assault last week. Um, and now even the world of you know, religious orders. I think this just shows that the common theme isn't, you know, what kind of industry you work in or your career background. Um, because, of course, in China, people associate, I think, the media industry um, and NGOs with loose standards of living. I think there's always been that tarnishing of, of you know, anybody who works in entertainment. Oh, of course, there's a certain kind of women, you know, lots of victim blaming there. But the fact that this isn't just restricted to one industry shows that it's not really about necessarily the inverted commas, kind of person involved. It's about power differentials. The uh, the monk you were just referring to, Joanna, was 
or is still president of the Chinese Buddhist Association, who is the head abbot of his monastery, and he was abusing nuns who were under his management, um, allegedly. And in all these other cases, we see, for example, Zhu Junquais, um he is a very well-known television personality. He's been the host of the Spring Festival Gala, one of the most important TV events in the Chinese year, for the last 20-odd years. And it was an intern who alleged that he'd molested her while she was um, working with him. So in all these cases, we get these huge power dynamics that are exacerbated by a deference to authority and also a lack of police uh, backing of the person who is the weaker person. And I think that's also what has led to so many Chinese uh, social media users watching these cases, because they can in some ways sympathize with that, with the idea that the justice system in China privileges the powerful at the expense of the weak. I feel like that too. I feel like um, in these cases, of the reason that we're not taking them seriously, or I guess the general public isn't taking it seriously, is because the men like Zhu Jun at the at CCTV, they can get away with anything. So even if an, an, an intern comes out and says, behind closed doors, he did this to me, most people don't will just sweep away the intern's explanation of what happened to her, even though it's obviously founded, in my opinion, because of what Yuan, you have just mentioned about the lack of judicial accountability, which is a huge problem. And I guess my take on the allegations in the arts also, I just want to mention, is that I just read this morning that the very famous um, poet and writer Chun Shu has come out in at the end of July saying that she was sexually assaulted and I think not just sexually assaulted, raped actually, because um, one of her posts on Weibo, this is on the Chinese microblog, Weibo was against two people. One was the was Zhang Chi, who is a writer, and then the other is the founder of New Weekly, Sun Mian. And I think that um, in both of these cases, these tweets or wherever you want to microblog posts are still available because I guess the arts is different because there's less censorship because it's art, you know, like writers talking about other writers or um, like, for example, New Weekly, the magazine in China is government backed in the sense that it has a publishing a serial number and it has gone through the censorship process and it's in Chinese. So the founder of this magazine was quite a big magazine, sexually assaulting one of the most famous female writers in China is a huge deal, but and it's not been censored so far. But she came out and said when she was 23, she was sexually assaulted. She's in her 30s now. So I think in the arts also, this case in particular is huge. And these are repeat offenders as well, because other writers have come out and also said that I've also, you know, this has happened to me. So these women are sort of being believed because more women are coming out and saying it's happened to me, you know, in the same field by the same men in power. And they're also saying I was very young at the time, you know, I was in my 20s. I'm more powerful now, but I'm in my 20s at the time. And I think in Trinshul's case, after, you know, a big banquet dinner, she was taken to the side of a room and assaulted, or she was taken to a hotel room and assaulted. So, um, so now that they're older, they sort of have come out and say, you know, this is my story. And also when I've read commentary on this by Li Maizu or other Chinese feminists, they usually say it's good to speak out because it means that they don't feel like the victim anymore. I think that's the snowballing effect of the Me Too movement in one allegation, often turning up many more allegations um, because of repeat offenders. 
That snowball effect is really a big issue for censorship and how censors try to deal with the issue in, in China. Um, because in, on most issues, there's a kind of automatic censorship mechanism that if an issue is about uh, public um, unhappiness over an event and it gets a certain level of kind of frequency of, of um, retweets and discussions on Weibo, then the authorities will automatically shut that down because they see it as an opportunity as an opportunity for mass unhappiness mass unrest um, about some part of Chinese society and that's automatically bad um, but sometimes that it means putting a lid on a pressure cooker where the steam is just building out up yeah and there's censorship that leads to even more unhappiness because people then start to blame the censors saying why are you shutting us down for this right so I think that is the fundamental problem this you know, this terrible um, attempt to shut something down by repressing it, which yeah. obviously doesn't lead to anybody being happier for it, right. um, which is a dilemma, which is a dilemma that the censors are facing in, with the Me Too movement. How much space can you give people to vent and to collect testimony? Um, and how much do you let people share information that fundamentally questions the basis of the Chinese criminal justice system, as well as Chinese institutions like universities, like uh, CCTV, like state media and so on? Right. Yeah, so I'm surprised that all these cases are coming out and being shared so widely. Um, like, I thought I heard that the hashtag Me Too and Me Too in China was being blocked on Weibo. Has it been unblocked or are people finding ways around it to there still are, talk about it yet? There are lots of alternatives to the Me Too hashtag um, on Weibo. And also Weibo blocking is very erratic. So I noticed, for example, a few days ago, I managed to post a link to um, an FT Chinese article about Me Too with the hashtag Me Too in English um, hashtag and that was fine I managed to post that a couple of days later that Weibo post just disappeared from my profile page you know which is this kind of quite sneaky backwards censorship where you don't know that your post has been deleted but it has effectively been deleted um, there are other ways in which Weibo can censor you but not tell you so then it makes it even harder to track the censorship for example what's called shadow banning which is when the platform stops your tweet from spreading to other people but you see it and so you think that it's been posted um, so there are lots of examples of kind of roundabout censorship tricks so yes that's right Joanna the me too english hashtag has uh, on and off been censored on Weibo as well as the Chinese version of it Me Too which means rice bunny yeah <laughs> um, and people have found really funny ways around this for example I saw somebody trying to use the emoji for a bowl of rice and a rabbit instead of uh, the Me Too hashtag also just translations of Me Too into other languages um, and there was a great post I think Luo Shishi shared it um, which had um, a collection of different translations of the phrase me too and then saying you know you think you can censor us all but in fact you know this is where the uh, linguists can step up to the plate right i just want to add to the um the trenchu allegations because um it's not just um what i said about the new weekly it's also other big chinese periodicals and they're the people in charge uh who are usually men so the other periodicals like china weekly Zhongguo Xinmen Zhoukan and the others there are lots of men there who are being accused by their writers or former writers who are women of uh sexual inappropriate behavior and i think we should quickly touch on the gradations of the sexual inappropriate behavior because Yuan is here and she has led consent workshops because like for example writers are saying at this dinner you know this uh, famous editor put his hand on my thigh and stroked it and then afterwards he kept on 
chatting to me on WeChat and saying on WeChat and saying uh, inappropriate words like flirtatious behavior or you know carried on. So I want to ask you, Anne, because、mm-hmm. you have experience. What? How do we、um, define consent and the gradations of sexual assault? Yeah, I think the gradations question. Is very difficult to answer because each instance of assault happens within a certain context. So, for example, Alicia mentioned the hand on your thigh, and you can imagine that can happen in a variety of different contexts. For example, a stranger on public transport, or it could be your boss,、um, you know, in your office when you're you two are the only people in the office, or it could be a colleague at a work event, you know, at dinner. It could be somebody doing it to you while you're both、um, visible to everyone else who can see that. The person's doing this to you, and those contexts, and also your relationship with the person, the power involved, will hugely affect how much、um, of a deal it is for you personally, and how much、um, it affects your relationship with that person. So, of course, there's a、um, in in UK law there is gradation between sexual assault and rape, where rape is defined as. Uh, sexual intercourse,、um, actually in a very male-specific way. So、yeah. it's about kind of penis and vagina intercourse, okay,、um, which completely rules out、um, some forms, you know, some forms of homosexual, yes, of course, rape and so on.、Yeah. But in any case, in the UK law, that's that's how it's defined as、uh, sexual intercourse without consent, or where、um, consent doesn't exist and the perpetrator doesn't have a reasonable belief、yeah. that consent exists either. Yes. So those are the three ingredients: the the sex, the lack of consent, and the lack of reasonable belief in the consent. Okay. And then what yeah, about? And, and、yeah. also in in China, it's interesting that the law, like first of all, like you mentioned, sexual harassment law and is very thin. Like there's not a lot for prosecutors to work on.、Uh, on top of that, in Chinese law, like men can't be rape victims.、Mm-hmm. Um, only women can be raped,、um, but men can be sexually assaulted.、Um, mm. I think. Like going broader now, this ties into what Alice and I were speak, speak, talking about, chatting with each other earlier about power and whether women can also be the aggressors. Because、mm. um, we've done some soul searching as well on things that we did in the past, like me pulling on men's belts at parties and kind of cackling like it's a joke, and then later feeling regretful and apologizing because I didn't get the consent of these men to、right. to grab grab their you know clothing.、Um, Like in China, like are people talking about this? Are they talking about? It's such a traditional society where men are supposed to be like the people in power.、Um, are there any cases involving gay men or men who might have been attacked by women? I feel like gender gradations, like sexuality and homosexuality in China, especially amongst Chinese men, is such a, and this is me generalizing, but such a taboo t- topic that if. If a guy came onto another guy inappropriately sexually, that it could it wouldn't be necessarily talked about. What do you think, Yuan? I think men in China have largely been absent from the mainstream conversation. That's not the case for conversations. I know that in many LGBT NGOs, men there have you know, taken an active role in saying, especially after the Leitrong allegations, and they've taken an active role in saying this is not acceptable in our community. You know, standing up at conferences and saying you know, these are the ground rules for consent in our community. So, so I think gay men or straight men.、Um, I think yeah, gay or queer men、yeah. in in, NG, in the NGO world in、yeah. China. So I think there have been you know men really stay, stepping up to. The task and of trying to maintain safe communities、um, in the NGO world, but I think in the more let's say mainstream Chinese discourse,、uh, men are largely missing from it.、Mm. There is always the assumption that men are the 
sexual drivers are the active party in sex. Yeah, right. And that women have to be persuaded or kind of mollycoddled and some, in, in some cases coerced into sex. Into sex and okay. when I talk about this with Chinese friends, you know, around my age or slightly younger than me in their, in their twenties, I'm always surprised at their relations of their first sexual experiences. Why is um, that? So many female students, as we mentioned earlier, don't have access to contraception or don't have the understanding of how to access contraception, which adds a f- certain complication into having comfortable sex because then the woman is often worrying about getting pregnant, which is something that is less of a deal for the for the man and that leads that's led to female friends of mine talking about their first sexual encounters at university of being one where they felt supremely uncomfortable but they felt like it's something they had to do to keep the relationship going or because it's something that their partner demanded and because at the time that they thought that's kind of just how it happened so this would be interesting ties back into the um, gradations of sexual assault in China, especially. So if a writer like, you know, the one I mentioned before is Jiang Fangzhou saying that an editor at one of these big magazines put his hand on her thigh and she doesn't, you know, she, and it's sexual assault. She's sort of defining sexual assault herself right there, right then, mm. because in China, you know, the power dynamics are so that, like you've just said, men, almost think that it's okay to physically be in close proximity with the women or even have their hands on them and in a way that's because sex is more coercive right the the man that the man takes more of the initiative in this society in this patriarchal society yeah i would say there's a shade of that across the world yeah of course course, yeah. yeah so in this sort of gender dynamic here in this country it becomes very gray i feel much more grayer than it would be in the uk yeah, and when we talk about gradations in the law as well, the Chinese law is extremely vague about this. It's not very analytical. So the Chinese law will refer to uh, phrases like uh, the use of force, the use of violence. And these concepts kind of presuppose other concepts such as consent and what is normal. So if you can't have a standard for what is you know, consensual sex, then how can you start to talk about forceful sex or violent right, sex? Right. And it does conjure up this image, which is actually the min- minority of cases of somebody doing physical harm to you right. in 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 the act of raping you, which is actually not that common. A lot yeah. of the time, the victim has no physical damage. Yeah. And that is because they're being raped by somebody that they feel they can't say no to, they can't struggle against because of the power dynamic. Right, because we've all had stories of these in Chinese um, families where the husband is sort of publicly beating his wife and then right, you don't right. really know what to do because the you want to raise it to the police. Yeah. But and it's, they don't want to do anything. Yeah, do. And, and that public kind of... Um, that domestic violence in public is almost in some places accepted by the police. I remember um, another uh, NGO training on domestic violence, um, a woman giving a great tip actually for all the participants. A lot of time, if you're a witness to domestic violence in public, you might want to call the police and say, look, there's a man beating his wife. And this woman was recommending that rather than saying it's a man beating his wife, you just say, look, I'm on the street. There's one person beating another person. Nice. And that often yields a much uh, stronger response from the police who take it more seriously. I mean, not nice for the woman being beaten up. <laughs> yeah. But, but, yeah, yeah, but yeah. As, a, as a tip. And then there are lots of tip. these really it's great nice. kind of uh, what, what are called active bystander things that um, you can do. Um, but just knowing how to frame it in a way that makes more sense in a yeah. Chinese context is helpful. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. 
So Yuan, like, where do you see the MeToo movement going in China? Because we do still mm. see ongoing censorship, even like you said, um, it's kind of on and off and erratic. And are, like, the government must be nervous because there's mm. already been sex scandals affecting top politicians, yeah. like pretty senior politicians, who were accused of and prosecuted for having seen. Uh, yeah. sex workers and giving their mistresses yeah. a lot of money, for example. Um, and if we scroll back a couple of years, remember that the booksellers, um, the Hong Kong booksellers who were illegally uh, extradited or rather kidnapped, taken to the mainland and had show trials for selling books in Hong Kong. Um, one of the books that they were selling was actually an account that alleged that President Xi Jinping was on the verge of divorcing his current wife before he became president. So, I mean, that just highlights how sensitive personal stories are for the leadership. There's no way in which the leadership would want anybody to get their hands on that material because it's not that it's necessarily politically relevant um, because it's about the love life of a, of a leader, but it does lead to mockery. And that's something that an authoritarian government cannot stand is any kind of mockery or joke making, laughing, ridiculing. I feel like I, f yeah, I feel like Me Too um, yeah. isn't gonna, almost like Me Too isn't gonna affect them because the everything that comes out about anyone in the leadership or anyone in any leadership will just be swept aside. Mm. I think there's a danger of severe repercussions for the individuals. Yes, I mean, exactly. the, to go back to the Zhu Jun case, the CCTV case, um, sorry, that stands for the Chinese state media channel. So he's probably the most high profile establishment figure who's been implicated in this, um, along with, of course, the president of the Chinese Buddhist Association, the abbot that we just talked about. Um, and that allegation was censored really quickly um, against Zhu Jun. Um, but what's worth noting is that the woman uh, who made that allegation according to her when she reported it to police a policewoman told her this person has a tremendous positive impact on our society so why are you taking this forward why don't you just drop this and that just shows how much the chinese um, police and the judicial system can back the powerful against the weak which is of course a really uh, major theme and ignites a lot of anger among um, chinese internet users I think to your question of where where can this go, even at the brief meetings I've I've been at of feminists and others discussing Me Too in China, I see a lot of pent up energy and anger in the room, and women coming forth with even more of their own personal allegations that they're not yet sharing in public. Um, it strikes me that there's a lot of fuel you know left to burn, um, and it's going to take quite a long time for it to all come out into the open. I think the Minister of Education has taken some active response in acknowledging that universities do need to change the way they handle sexual assault. So so hopefully what we're going to see is that universities will start to implement policies dealing with sexual assault and harassment, start to learn from international examples and start to um, reform their procedures internally. But it's going to take a long time for other parts of Chinese society to reform and to kind of change institutionally too. Yeah, let's hope that this... Um the recent Me Too movement that has sprung up, because I think we've decided it is a movement, is going to uh, head into new and interesting and really positive direction. Yeah, I think in a way, like it's depressing seeing all these cases, but to me, it's also been like I've covered human rights for so many years, and it's always been so depressing. But there's only been such like a groundswell of um, advocacy and story sharing I'm seeing in China. 
especially among young people and university students. So it kind of gives them hope that society will be more open. And I haven't like, you know, over the, all over the world, there's so much misogyny and woman bashing and victim blaming. But at least in China, as far as these university students, there hasn't been as much of that. I've seen more of majority of people supporting these women when they come out rather than um, asking what they were wearing or if they were yeah, wearing a really skirt good. and things like that. I feel that. like I feel the same way. I feel that there's a new generation mm. of women who are becoming feminists. So I think that we've actually seen this amazing positive outcome because I think more younger Chinese people are interested in uh, NGO work and in feminism work and a lot of these kids I think are like born in the 90s and they're sort of very very active and engaged on social media and off social media um, and I think it sort of fills me with hope and excitement in a way you know that's not just drudgery um, about what Joanna was saying uh, just lots of lots of negative reporting so what do you think about that Yuan? Yeah, I think that there is obviously a lot of censorship on the Chinese internet, and you know there are tens, hundreds of thousands of censors uh, full time employed to to do this. Um, but there are infinitely more inventive things that people have done to get around censorship. Um, private channels of communication can be really explosive in getting a story out, and stories like Me Too tend to snowball because they lead to more allegations, they lead to more people identifying with the story. Um, I'm reminded of one of the students I spoke to from uh, Tsinghua University, again, one of the top universities in, in China, um, who was actually part of a, a support group on a, a labor rights dispute, so not part of the MeToo movement. And I asked him, you know, do you think this is this movement that you're part of, which is looking at labor rights, is going to grow? And he said yes, because now it's just so easy to share information from across the country of where these protests are happening. So I'm still very you know, optimistic about that snowball effect and Despite censorship, the Chinese people are infinitely more inventive than the censors. Great. That sounds like a really good positive direction that we're heading in. Now we're going to have recommendations, but unlike the Seneca recommendations, we're going to focus on self-care and living well. So, Joanna, what recommendation do you have? Uh, yeah, sure. Well, it seems hokey, but there's a lot of meditation apps available and I'm always like laughing at my friends who kind of were like, oh, I'm going to go and stop and meditate. But then they actually show me like a seven minute guided meditation. And then afterwards I'm like, yeah, I'm like amazing. Like things as simple as like, oh, name five things you can see around you or name five things you can hear. And then it kind of really makes you present. So I think that really helps with the really juggling and busy work that we all do as writers and artists and translators. So you recommend which app? Um, I tried one called Calm. It's uh, on iPhone or and I think Android as well. Okay, and you can just download it. And uh, yeah, then it's free. It, there's a there's free guided meditations. Cool. I also think um, that's a great recommendation. Yuan. So it's funny we've been talking about the transformative effect of social media in China, but I would actually say a huge recommendation for me is to actually maybe not be on social media nice. as much, um, especially when it comes to um, having you know random. Um, often in my experience, uh, guys who I don't know you know at you and then um, curse at you or just call you names. Mm. I imagine that many other you know young Chinese or Chinese diaspora women attract this kind of attention on social media. Yeah. I think sometimes it's helpful to, to ask yourself when you're reading those messages, like, do I, de like, why, 
would somebody talk to me in this tone? You know, it's not even necessarily the content of the message itself. It's the tone that right. is really striking. What's the tone? Um, just aggressive, you know, presumption that they know you in some way that they can, that they have the right to say these things to you. Um, and maybe I often imagine myself in dialogue with these people and they've kind of come at me with a lot of aggression and my response to them, you know, in my imagined, uh, this is obviously an imagined kind of scenario is to say like, why do you want to talk to me like this? Mm. You know, you don't know me. Why would you want to talk to me like this? It's like a you know random stranger coming up to you on, on the street and starting to start an argument. Um, you might want to get into that argument. And sadly, sometimes I do get into that argument, but almost kind of more important than the content of the argument is... And this is on Twitter asking, or Weibo yeah. or Weixin? Oh, uh, yeah, a little bit of Weibo, mostly, mostly on Twitter, okay. including from... Um, I've noticed more and more Chinese uh, language um, interaction on Twitter. Okay, well. yeah. so Chinese followers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, okay. you know, I wrote about the, uh, you know, the Wutmao, the Five Cent Brigade and the modern version of that early this year uh, for the FT, um, basically writing about how there's a wave of young nationalists um, on Chinese uh, social media, but also increasingly going out onto the uh, blocked parts of foreign social media, so Twitter, Facebook, trying to make their imprint there. And sometimes I suspect that the responses I get are from you know, that category of people who don't really want to engage. They just want to make their anger felt. Mm, and they shouldn't be directing it at you, though. Or at, because you, you say it's, it's sort of a cross-intersectional sort of Chinese descent women and then like Chinese users who are in writing to you in Chinese as, well, assuming things yeah. about you that they don't know yeah yeah I think there's also sometimes a presumption that if you're of Chinese uh, descent and you're uh, writing about China then you should be patriotic and should be glad for your motherland and right. so on and that's the kind of tone I sometimes get yeah patronizing yeah. right I wonder if you get that more because you keep your Chinese name in in english i don't know i think i mean people talk to me more like oh you're a foreigner you're a foreign chinese yeah um, no i mean you know um they don't say things like you're betraying it's like oh you're a foreigner you're not um you're overseas chinese rather than yeah i think on i mean on social media we all have headshots right and um i think in person we might have more conversations about our real stories and our histories and so on but on social media people just react to what they think you are often there. I get a lot of really funny assumptions. So I'm British, um, in case you can't tell from this podcast. Um, and people like on Twitter will assume that I'm uh, American. They'll be like, "Why are you defending um, you know, America?" <laughs> Why would they assume you're American? You don't seem American. I think because there are lots of lots more East Asians in um, the US than there are in the UK. Okay. It's just like much more common to find. So and yeah. you're from Yorkshire, right? I am from Yorkshire. Which no, nobody's ever attacked me England. for not defending Yorkshire sufficiently. You on don't. Twitter. You don't sound too much like you're from Yorkshire. And sadly, sadly, I've not been there for a long time. Okay, but, that, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's kind of rare to have two UK Chinese people on the podcast. So I'm glad that we're both here, me and Yuan. Yay, <laughs> UK Chinese. Um, <laughs> yeah. But in my case, I guess also Chinese Chinese because I was mm. identify as both. Mm-hmm. So um, you identify as UK Chinese, right? I think I would tell people I'm British Chinese. Okay. Yeah, or Chinese British. And it's always. Uh, fun to swap around which adjective comes first to see the reaction <laughs> right you're hong kong canadian. canadian hong kong canadian so i don't identify with mainland chinese at all because right, i find right. hong kong such right. a particular culture so you're hong kong canadian and i was born in yes let's do a separate <laughs> it's great i love i i love um the fact that we have these like interesting identities and we can talk about so much separate podcasts so my recommendation 
is to go visit some of the Buddhist sites in China. Um, because we, we touched on the Longquan temple where the abbot, or I guess the head monk has been accused of sexually assaulting his nuns. But I do feel like these temples themselves, like if you want to go to Longquan, the Longquan temple, you can go. But the ones in, in, in Beijing, I'd recommend a specific one is the White Cloud Pagoda. Uh, it's in, it's in Beijing just to go visit on a weekend for self care because this one's also actually recommended to me by Ian Johnson, the writer. Because when you actually go, there's actually a sense of tranquility and peace if you don't look for the religiosity. So like, you know, don't look for the monks and the nuns and the actual religious ritual practices. Maybe I can be corrected on this by someone who, by Ian or by somebody. But generally speaking, I go to these places because I actually feel like they're pretty tranquil and you can just walk around, admire the architecture, go in and see the Buddhist statues. If you want to light incense, you can. But mostly it's just about walking and taking time for yourself in a quiet place that is sort of designed for devotion, even though the actual um, Chinese Buddhist Association practices and what have you can um, be off-putting i.e. the 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 Me Too <laughs> movement. <laughs> you, know, you know, like you know, the fact that it's not it's it's sort of incredibly um administrative and it's not, you know, it's its own separate system. The the how the abbots and the nuns and the monks and how they're trained and if they're actually religious in the first place, we have really no idea. But the actual temples themselves were built for religious reasons and they were built for devotional reasons centuries ago. So um that would be my recommendation. And I now pass this to you guys, if you have anything to add. Yeah, no, it was great. And thank you, Yuan, for coming and thanks for having me on the show. And yeah, thanks, guys. Um, we, we have a new charter that's on our website. Uh, please go check it out. It's um, about people that we work with and also ourselves and um, what we tolerate and do not tolerate in terms of sexual harassment and other forms of abuse. And please watch this space and get in touch with us if you have any questions or comments. The New Voices podcast is part of the Seneca Network and powered by SubChina. This episode was recorded by Anthony Tell and engineered and edited by Kaiser Kaur. Our theme music is by Wu Fei. Our website is nuvoices.com and you can follow us on Twitter at nvvoices. Contact us on our website and leave a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening and spread the word. Solidarity. Solidarity.